Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about the principles of centration. Centration is stabilization on an axis of rotation within a joint. This is a concept I learned from Charlie Weingroff a while back. This is a really important topic to dive into in terms of human movement. If you want to learn more about this module as well as over 50 others, head over to phpodcast.com to become a member to access our entire curriculum. Hope you guys enjoy and we'll see you guys on the other side. Centration is just merely packing a joint. So when I look at this concept, I'm thinking about creating stability in one area to provide either mobility or control elsewhere. This is a concept we've gotten from Charlie Weingroff, who's a physical therapist that has a large background in things like FMS and dynamic neuromuscular stabilization systems. So if you look at FMS and you look at DNS, you can really start to trace it back to these neurodevelopmental sequencing. And this is such an important topic. And it's funny because when you really look at core or pillar training or ab training, whatever you want to call it, you, know, you, you think about, all right, the spine and what its function is. Honestly, like I think there's a gross misconception when we look at training core musculature and we can get this from PRI, we can get this from any other like domain, but the reality is basically it's just controlling the thorax, relatively speaking, to the pelvis. And the more I can distribute forces from pelvis to thorax and thorax to pelvis without any kind of quote unquote leakage of energy or aberrant motion, and this such thing is an aberrant motion. Like there's things that we have to accept are absolutely true that yes, that no two movements are alike and we've gone through Bernstein's law, we've gone through these things. But the fact of the matter is, is that I do want to control and I do want to have some sort of accuracy with what I'm doing. And if I can't control the quote unquote center of my body, right, and we go through various other things like the power zone all the way back into like the original weightlifting text, right? That if I can create triple extension from unlocking out the knee, hip, and um, staying a stable, neutral spine, then I should be able to create more force and velocity onto a barbell, and then that should translate into sprinting faster or jumping higher. You know, but going into the DNS concepts, you know, we have to look at it from the, the vantage point of these neurodevelopmental sequencing is reverse engineering your time from being upright all the way back down to being a baby. And if you look at the patterning from the bottom up, it goes into this prone where you're trying to learn how to move your head, move your hands, move your feet, sideline. So you're transitioning to now your stomach, which now you start to lift your head up in a different direction, start to look in different directions. You have a little bit more of freedom or availability as opposed to just looking left and right. Now you can look up. Then you start to move into, you know, these these different locomotion patterns, right? So, you know, sideline was a big deal, but now you can start to move forward and backwards or laterally or start to climb things, right? And if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see it. You see it all the time with your children. And then you maybe get to a half kneeling and a squat position and then you stand up and then you start to learn how to walk. But each one of those phases represents some sort of 
some sort of built upon infrastructure of stability and mobility. And in order for me to be a baby on my back and to being an upright walking adult, there has to be some sort of strategy because if you look at the muscle tone and if you look at some of the activation and synchronization stuff that we have to have to be an upright bipedal animal, we need to start to look at it from strategies that we're building is based off of this. Can we start to pack certain joints? And you see this a lot, man. We see this with all of our movement. And one of the things that I've always really admired about functional movement systems is this concept of how simple they come off, but how really elaborate and detailed they are underneath the hood. I get, I get pretty up in arms about like the, you have no idea just how much depth and how much we're actually doing when we're doing a functional movement screen. We're taking in so much in consideration, but the truth of the matter is, is when you go through motor learning in college and you're thinking about all the progressions from A to B, you know, and you know, like I have two children and I'm looking at them and I kind of like in my back of my mind and my wife doesn't care. She's just like, this is, you know, she, she's walking. This is great. I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is kind of early, right? We should be waiting a little bit or, uh, or she keep them crawling a little bit longer because she's not developing these, these, the thoracolumbar fascia and the hip joint, relatively speaking, to the shoulder joint. And she's not learning to control the thorax, relatively speaking, to the pelvis. You know, that, that is what's in the back of my mind. And I have a, a daily, a daily influence on what happens when we kind of rush the process or they uh, stand up too early. But, the truth is, is as I start to watch, you know, my children move and locomote, you know, I'm thinking definitely don't have the muscle tone to be able to overcome their body weight, especially some of their, their head sizes. And if you, you've had kids, you see that the size of their head, relatively speaking to their body is, is abnormal and the body grows at a much different level than the, the, the skull or the cranium. So how would she have enough muscle to be able to move her body? She doesn't. She's packing joints. She's creating stability in certain joints to allow for other mo other joints to move. She's basically building a base. So when we're thinking about packing, packing a joint or centration, it's to create stability from a neurodevelopmental sequencing. And I'm going to get into where this applies in terms of like training and whatnot, but you have to understand that origin. You have to understand and appreciate this, this really central theme. And there's a lot of other things we're going to dive into, right? We've talked about extensively the idea of a lever is kind of obsolete and that joints are essentially just, just spaces for fluid to move. And it moves from an open and closed space. I highly recommend you get back into that levers module that we did. You know, there, there is no such thing as a lever. There's no such thing because there's no fulcrum. There's no contact of the bone on bone. If there is, it's a problem. So when we look at all a joint is, it's either a space maker or a compression structure, right? And this goes back into that tensegrity concept. You know, when we're looking at creating space or creating compression, that this alternating sequencing of compression and tension or stress or or creating some sort of place where we can create that 
stability or movement, we have to understand from tensegrity that is, again, another strategy of how we navigate, orient a three-dimensional world. So if we're looking at centration, relatively speaking, to those other ones, you know, we can look at it from the lever concept of maintaining fluid relationships or hydrodynamics within the joint as this neutral zone for that joint, that the fluid becomes, and I'm saying this with air quotes, but relatively static, that we've created a, a stack stable joint to keep fluid distribution on either side of that joint equal. Mm, that's an important note, and we'll come back to that. The next part, though, is when we look at the interplay between tension and compression, you know, we have the tensioning agent, which is a contractile element within the tensegrity system or compressional discontinuity, which we've talked about again, go back to the tensegrity module. And we talked about that relatively speaking to this idea of one acting as tension and the other one, which is now centration acting as compression that we are intentionally creating a neutral, stable joint to allow for other joints to tense, to lengthen or shorten. And that interplay of all of these things, and this is why that models-based thinking that we've talked about, hopefully at this point, till nauseum is so critical because none of these things are working in isolation, centration, tensegrity, levers, none of this. And it's all kind of built off the fabric and the foundation of, do I even have a good joint? Do I have good length tension relationships? Do I have good control at these, like these longer, more distal fibers or these longer, longer, larger range of motions? That's an important thing because all of this is interconnected. Remember the web of coherence from Charlie Munger. This is such an important thing to really establish here with you guys. And we're talking about centration. There's no disconnect. There's no exclusivity to this topic, relatively speaking, to anything else. That we live in three-dimensional complex environments and we need to understand that preparing athletes needs a models-based approach. It needs to be able to think about this in a, a more abstract kind of way. So the definition of centration, and I pulled this from an article called uh, by an author named Frank, Neuromuscular strategy is not static, but a dynamic in nature in order to provide functional, neutral, or centered joint, which is described as joint centration. So, when we think about that neutral aspect, <coughs> we want to limit momentum within the joint, right? When we go back to the levers function, we talked about this idea that once I get my first rep go going, and I have fluid going from an open to a closed closed space that once we start getting into the second rep that water kind of splashes around and it starts to move a little bit more freely because momentum is a force multiplier and momentum typically goes in direction remember there's no inertia is this things typically go in the direction that they're going unless acted upon an outside force so I start to eccentric and I start to slow that, mo that fluid down or I start to gradually stop moving or start to pack a certain joint. But we looked at this in the sense of that fluid movement going from a closed to an open space. So I'm closed, I'm pushing fluid away, open, I'm pushing fluid towards. Then I start to look at it from the concept of 
Well, what if I don't want fluid moving in a joint and I want another joint to move freely, right? So let's think about like a, a pattern here, right? And just keep it very simple. Let's talk about a hinge joint, the knee or the elbow. Let's think I'm moving on like a squat and I want to create as much knee flexion as I possibly can. And all I'm doing is going from a pushing fluid. So if I'm standing upright, bone on bone, we have fluid push right to the front of that that knee joint right behind the, the patella and in the back of that knee joint. And then as I start to squat, I go from this neutral position and then I start to create a closing angle and that's knee flexion. So the fluid goes from the back of the knee to the front of the knee. And then I start to stand back up and then the fluid goes from the front of the knee right behind the patella to the back of the knee. And then we start moving, right? And that's why that second rep starts to feel a little easier because now we got some momentum of fluids. But what, let's say I didn't want to bend my knee there. Let's say I wanted to work a little bit more of a hip joint. And this work gets a little bit more challenging because different joints are designed for different things, right? The big, the big three is going to be this hinge joint, so knee and elbow, ball and socket joint, which is that, that hip and shoulder, and then we look at the wrist and ankle, which is more of a saddle, right? And the way those things work and the way those things function, that it's really a matter of when I look at those joints, are those joints primary design for mobility or stability? Am I looking at the hip joint and I'm thinking, okay, that's a ball and socket joint. How do I understand what that job, that function is? I can just simply look at where foot's foots or where the foot the fluids are going and if the fluids are moving in all directions or the capacity to move in all directions an open angle is more of this kind of like nebulous term because what is an open angle when a thing can move in all all planes of motion you know i can start to think about all right well fluids can go in every direction this is more of a this is more of a difficult joint to compress or create centration in. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? That's something that as I start to think about and I start to move and I start to create this quote unquote strategy to create force or absorb forces, that certain joints are just gonna be a little bit different in terms of centration, right? And you're thinking about this packing of certain joints Okay, well, you have to work a little bit harder, or you have to rely on maybe potentially a, a more complicated or really complex strategy to pack that joint, right? So let's say that I wanted to do a hinge, or I wanted to do like a kettlebell swing, and I start to look at it from, all right, that's kind of a total body movement. If you think about it, I'm holding something, and then I'm moving everything. And am I actually like, and I want to make it more hip dominant. And let's just put aside your personal preference on kettlebell swings for a second, if I wanted to make it more hip dominant and I start to apply this like vertical shin packed knee joint and then I look up the kinetic chain I said oh wow that back kind of like I don't want that moving a whole lot so maybe I start to create this quote unquote packed spine and then I start to look up and up and I start to look at that scalp scapula my god we'll pull that down and in and then I start to look at that shoulder. Well, I could kind of corkscrew my arms and that will lock in that, that ball and socket joint. So I start to rotate against the fixed kettlebell with my thumbs. 
And then I start to move my hips. And essentially a hinge joint is just opening and closing the door. Question would be is where that hinge attaches, does it have loose screws? And if those screws are loose, that door becomes a little wobbly. Same thing if I start to have a little bit unpacked knee or an unpacked spine or unpacked shoulder. Then I start to see some quote unquote leakage of energy or some wobbliness. That pattern becomes aberrant. And this is what I'm this is what I'm alluding to when I'm talking about aberrant motion. It's motion that I don't want. And I don't love that narrative that all things is complex and dynamic and we shouldn't have any standard of movement. In fact, I hate it. Because you have no way to assess the quality of your intervention. You don't. When you have a million and one different iterations and you say they're just expressing themselves in a three-dimensional world, then you have no ability to quality control and say you're more effective than someone else. You're basically just living in chaos. Science is exploration. Science is having constraints and controls to see what the quality of intervention is. And to me, I like to look at it from the context of I believe in what I'm doing and I believe that what I'm doing is effective and I need to understand if that was effective without bias. And if I look at my movement patterns and I'm training with the variables I'm associating with those and I have no constraints on one of the variables, like meaning I didn't hit my sets, reps, tempo, intensity, or I have no controls or constraints on the movements, meaning that I didn't go through a certain prescribed range of motion with certain positions or body, or body angles, and I get this like variable result and it was good or bad, I really don't know where that result came from. I'm intentionally constraining the environment as a control to see the impact of my training. So when I'm looking at centration and I'm saying pack the shoulder, pack the neck, pack the spine, pack the knee, because I want to see the impact on that hip dominant posterior chain exercise on let's say power, let's say cross-sectional muscle area, let's say anything that I'm trying to create structural balance in the anterior chain. Right, and, and I can say, okay, well, did I have injuries, right? And like, do I have equal distribution of pushing and pulling? Do I have a, a, a spine that's able to control the thorax and the pelvis from not lifting my pump handle and not going into this anterior tilt? Okay, and then I might have a little bit more cross-sectional muscle area in the hip area or the, the hamstring. Maybe I have a little bit more power in the horizontal vector when I start to do like long jumps. Who knows? I, I, I really, whatever. Whatever the output measure is, it's contingent upon my ability to assess the intervention. And if the intervention is wildly out of control, then I'm going to have a tough strategy. But there is another thing to think about this. It's not just from input-output measurement. This is our actual hardwired strategy we learn how to move. And when you're doing things like rotary stability or trunk stability push-up, which is a primal quote-unquote stability pattern from the functional movement screen, you're essentially looking at it from if they were asked to create force in a very stable environment, can they? And if they can't, you have to start to evaluate what am I going to do with their feet on the ground? They have very poor strategies to control their thorax and their pelvis with a very stable environment. The more surface area you have on the ground, the more balance you have. So if I am on my back 
and I pull my knees to my chest. I'm gonna say I keep perfectly dorsiflex position and have my arms overhead and I can break parallel of my thigh relatively speaking to my torso, meaning I pull my knees pretty much right past my belly button. And then I take that angle and I invert that and I put that person at a 90 degree angle and I ask them to get in that same position on squat and they can't without this like very hingy type movement. Either they've either they lack the prerequisite range of motion well, from a mobility standpoint, no, they can hit adequate dorsiflexion, they can hit adequate knee flexion, they can hit adequate hip flexion, they can hit adequate shoulder flexion. Just when I put them upright, they have now seemed to lost that range of motion. That's a control issue. That's a length tension relationship that we can't maintain that length without the same amount of tension. And the truth is, babies can do that without tension. They can do it pretty much anytime they want through other strategies, aka packing or centration of the joint. So if I'm trying to get into this output and I'm trying to get into this, this hard hard elusive prospect of reducing injuries and improving performance and I can't do a basic movement pattern without control and it can at least try to resist certain motions right like you know I think we can all test to if I want someone to jump higher in the vertical vector and they have this very hip dominant strategy they're going to spend more time on the ground and less time in the air if they were asked to jump because they're moving in a horizontal vector they don't know how to pack certain joints. They don't know how to create, they don't have enough tension capability at certain lengths. But as soon as they start to unlock their ankle, knee, and hip, they lose their capacity to maintain this vertical-oriented torso. Could be cross-sectional area of the quad, could be ankle dorsiflexion, could be just as they start to go down, that pelvis starts to go into this anterior tilt and they're forced to drop their torso to comp compensate for the thorax not being able to, the thorax is reacting to the pelvis and the pelvis is reacting to length tension around the hip. <laughs> that you've adopted this, this centrated position of the hip because you don't have adequate strength, right? And if that's something that, that's something to think about too, right? Talked about the hip and the shoulder are way more complex joints to pack and stabilize. If I close that angle off and I go into flexion and anterior tilting, that's a way of centrating that joint, especially if I'm corkscrewing the ground. So I start to externally rotate my femur and I start to anterior tilt my pelvis <coughs> and I start to go on lower doses in my spine. That's hip centration. That's what I'm doing in the shoulder when I'm kettlebell swinging, right? We talked about that before. Start to rotate your thumbs or externally rotate your shoulders pack, pull your shoulder blades down. Maybe pull your chin back. Or maybe you go into a little bit of extension of the, the neck, right? That same kind of concept and dynamic. It's the same strategy. Lifting your sternum, externally rotating your shoulders, cervical extension is the same thing as, as pelvic anterior tilting, externally rotated femurs and lordosis. It's a pack strategy. It's a centration strategy. And why are we taking these joints that are primarily designed for mobility, going through all three planes of motion, and packing them? It's because we can't pack our other joints. 
or we can't create mobility in our other joints. We don't know how to time it and sequence it. Our babies do, because that's the only way they're gonna get upright. So we're thinking about DNS, and we're thinking about functional movement screen. It's just an inventory of that. So if you start to look through the ball and socket joint, you know, we can start to think, ball and socket's a mobility joint, hinge joints are stability. We go through the Gray Cook, Mike Boyle, joint by joint, the interlocking sequencing of, of joints function, right? We got ankle joint is a mobility joint, knee joints are a stability joint, hip joints a mobility joint. And then we start to look at the lumbar spine, how that's for stability, and then we start to look at the, the shoulder or the ball and socket joint there. We start to look at the scapula, that's more of a, a stability thing. You know, we have all these kind of things happening and it's all a matter of just controlling myself in this more upright position. One of the other things I thought was really interesting from that Frank article, talked about this in the good quote, joint centration is when the joint surface, congruence and muscle that support that joint area at their optimal mechanical advantage throughout the range of motion, thus are capable of varying forces according to a required skill. I mean, that's a pretty loaded thing, but think about it from the concept of that I can alternate joint function from stability to mobility to accommodate a certain skill, right? You think about these really big, robust movement patterns like throwing a baseball or sprinting or even something like a triple jump or a high jump or a shot put or a jab. Like there's all these amazingly complex, very repeatable skills. And what do we, like, you get stronger, yeah. Yeah, you do. But most of the improvement comes from mechanics. You know, you can get faster, yeah, biomotor has an impact, absolutely. But if I was going to create a pie chart distribution of why someone could throw a javelin really far from biomotor to biomechanic, most of that improvement is going to come within the, the initial biomechanical improvement. It just is what it is. That the net difference of biomotor versus biomechanic is just completely monopolized by biomechanic. We make changes long-term wise with elite level athletes and biomotor, but most of the net is gonna come from improving. I mean, you look at sprinting from my baby being on the ground to them becoming upright, 90% of all their, whatever their speed's gonna be when they're adults gonna come from their ability to learn how to walk. And it just comes from, can I control joints? Can I control the timing and sequencing of those joints? Movement is such a foundational piece. Don't get me wrong, man. I really enjoy the training aspect and the, and the development of patterns. But those patterns are predicated off of this underlying motor learning and biomechanical ability, aka movement, well before that. Frank also pointed out that that this kinetic chain centration strategy allows for transference of forces through that. It goes right back to tense crudity, right? The, the idea of packed centra centrated joint is this compressional strategy, which Frank calls, and there's another article by Panjabi, where he goes through this idea of the neutral zone. 
And we start to look at, as we start to move, we have ranges of motion of certain joints and then other joints are having to stabilize, right? And I mean, even going FRC, what do they talk about? It's create, centri- create a radiation, right? This tensioning strategy in all the rest of your body to allow for control so we can move other joints freely. It's the same damn concept. And like FRC would disagree on centration, but the truth of the matter is I feel like they're just extremely biased and focused on what they want to kind of focus on. But it is a centrating strategy. It is a create stability in a joint to allow for other joints to move freely and develop forces. And that's how it applies to different longer term strategies. And when we look, we reverse engineer DNS or PRI in FRC, it's just creating stability in certain areas to allow for more mobility or more force in others. Mind tension, guys. That's such an important aspect of this. And when you start to see all these things unravel and start to become elucidate themselves and become more transparent, you have this really amazing aha moment. And then you start to look at movement a lot differently. You start to look at gait patterns a lot differently. You start to look at crawling patterns a lot differently. You start to look at start to look at squatting and hinging and carrying a lot differently. You know, pushing and pulling a lot differently. You start to look at creating tension, right? And you start to look at controlling the body so you can get more of these things that we do and don't want. The thing that I love from the DNS world is is this idea that in all of these positions, from a supine to sideline to prone to quadruped to half kneeling to tall kneel or to tall kneeling to half kneeling to split stance to standing bilateral stance is that every single one of those things is going to have a different strategy of of stability and mobility. And this goes into a whole nother thing of embryology and looking at different species and their ability to locomote. There's another really good resource in there uh, from Philip Beach and myofascial meridian, meridians and myofascial meridians. That quadruped animals versus biped animals have completely different strategies to locomote. And you think about it, essentially we're just taking away joints or we're starting with a different base support. So on our back, our base support is our entire body. So in my hips, my ankles, my knees move more freely. When that base support changes, that thing in contact with the ground becomes our only connection to creating stability. That's our foundation, the whole cannon from a canoe kind of thing. So if my feet are load-bearing, that those 52 bones in my feet have to take on a much more robust strategy to create stability. So it's no wonder why my ankle becomes locked in, especially if my feet lose proprioceptive awareness and the ability to grasp and pull. And we look at a lot of stuff by Gary Gray and this like everted foot where that foot is the the calcaneus is essentially pointing up and out. And then we start to externally rotate that tibia or this like, I guess, 
supinated position or pronated position of the foot. And all of a sudden now we look at my stability function is basically this foot that's locked, is calcaneus that's locked in eversion. And that subtalar joint is now rotated outward to compensate for that. And then all of a sudden I don't have this glide effect of the tibia over that subtalar. But the talus is basically just locked in that these joints that have to start to time and move relative, relatively speaking, start to block gait. And you start to see this adopted strategy of, of walking like a duck. And then, oh, by the way, I'm gonna start to squat and then, oh man, this person doesn't have ankle mobility. Well, now they don't have good feet. There's a lot of other variables associated with it. So if I wanted that person to get better knee flexion, I could take that ankle joint away and see if they can just do it into a, a kneeling position. And then you start to see if they do have knee flexion, in all theory, you should be able to squat. Can I get that foot out of eversion? Yeah, I could just put them on a slant board and I could put them in a more neutral position and all of a sudden that tibia moves forward a little bit more comfortably and then that knee can flex. And I think when you start to see all the patterns you wanna train, like right, my, 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 big, my big four, right? I look at a squat, hinge, push and pull and I break it down from there. <coughs> I'd probably throw in a rotational chop and lift in there, but that's besides the point. It's a really difficult one to kind of dive into from a centration. Nah, maybe not. Maybe I can go into it. But, you know, squat, hinge, push, and pull. And I just look at it from the concept of all of my regression strategies, meaning there's some sort of pain, it's based off taking a joint away. That's it. All I'm trying to do is just take away a joint. So I have better stability, so I can create more direct targeted stress in an area through range of motion or more direct forces in that area. That's it. A lateralization, and I'm gonna talk with Charlie Weingroff on this one, so I have to give a lot of credit to Charlie from this, from the whole, the whole centration idea and applying DNS in a more practical way. That lateralizations and regressions are simply just strategies we're taking joints away. That's it. So I have a different base support. So I have a different timing sequence. I have a different locomotion sequence, a different movement pattern, right? Can I squat with my back on the ground if I have someone who has some sort of herniated disc? Yeah, probably. Can I create some sort of stress in that, that anterior quad by creating a seated hip flexion with like maybe an ankle weight? Yeah, a ton. Do it. I guarantee you'll start cramping like crazy. These are important. This is an important thing to think about as you're starting to create programming and you're starting to think about my funnel is through these four patterns or whatever it is you do. Like you can throw in the other other locomotive patterns of a jump, a hop, a bound, a walk, a jog, a run, a shuffle, a karaoke. Uh, all these things, all those patterns. And they're all essentially just locomoting in all three planes of motion at various, various rates and various vector vectors. And my ability to pack certain joints, my ability to create mobility in certain joints is the foundational piece of that. And you see, if you've ever done a skipping at pattern where you're trying to really essentially time and create rhythm but that timing rhythm of the lower and upper quadrant is now in a different 
a different focal point and has a different sequencing essentially and you see them do something like same arm same leg I would be remiss to say if they were going to crawl it would probably be a same arm same leg person that they would crawl on the right right left left and then you could do this take away their wrist joint put them on their elbow see what they do then keep breaking it down maybe you go to their back and you do a dead bug or an all, a contralateral dead bug you're basically just finding positions of more stability and trying to interpret where that actually is coming from and you watch that person that's the same arm same leg person probably feels so uncomfortable doing something like a dead bug and a crawl because they skip neurodevelopmental sequencing and this is my joke with my wife of like I want my babies on the ground as long as I possibly can because I know, I know that that neural development sequencing, if they rush those steps, they're not going to create the, the centration that they need. And then that's going to lead into offset length tension relationships and offset motor patterns as they start to get more upright and bipedal. Might as well just put them in the water. They're going to become swimmers because they are a ipsilateral animal. And that is way better in the water. So that, as I'm looking through centration and I start to look at these increasing and decreasing of forces and I start to look at all the stuff that we get from improving control in all planes of motion, that's a powerful impact on biomotor ability. I just need to start with biomechanics. I'm going to pause there, guys. I know this was a lot to unpack. Again, get on the module. This is a huge, huge topic to go through keep chipping away at it all these movement modules are really tough to unpack unless you have module corresponding with it in front of you because just the visuals the examples the written like there's just too much to to say on this podcast so if you guys can get on the actual module and help yourself understand and learn you could be that much better for it appreciate you guys and uh we'll see you guys next week